0: There was a time where I couldn't rest. There was no joy for even a minute in my day. And so I wanted to be done. And I had a plan and I wrote goodbye letters to my kids. I'll never forgive myself for that, for almost destroying their lives. Today, I
1: sit down with Brianne Dressen, who was severely injured after participating in AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial in November of 2020. She is the co-chair of React 19, the leading nonprofit organization aiding those injured by the genetic vaccines.
0: We want the injured to be empowered to be able to make their decisions and take ownership of their healing. When everything around them, their medical teams, their their jobs, their government has abandoned them and essentially stripped them of that power.
1: She says the NIH knows much more than they let on.
0: They started flying people out. They Studied us. They went so far as to collect samples from someone who had died. This is
1: American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Brianne Dresson, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: It's been about a year since you sat down here on American Thought Leaders with Maddie DeGary and Stephanie DeGary, um, and frankly, helped introduce me to the world, the realities facing the vaccine injured um, in America, specifically related to these genetic vaccines. And so I'm really happy to have you back and to figure out you know, what has happened in a year. I, I, I know a lot has. Um, what I want to do to start is just to get your personal story here for the record. You know, What happened to
0: you? My personal story started A long time ago. It's been over two years now. Um, Before my vaccine, I was healthy. Um, I was a mother of two young kids, preschool teacher. Um, I was definitely all in. It was not a matter of if I was going to get the vaccine, but it was going to be when. So the soonest I could get it, you know, I was going to do that. And at the time, I firmly believed that if I got vaccinated, I would not spread the disease to others. And I wanted to do everything I could to be part of the solution, to take care of those around me. So I signed up for a clinical trial with AstraZeneca here in the United States and uh, got my shot on November 4th, 2020. And within an hour, I had tingling down the same arm of my shot. And later that night, my vision had become blurry and double. And within two and a half weeks, I had landed in the hospital uh, after four ER visits, um, each, each visit had new symptoms that were very concerning, severe tachycardia, bradycardia, uh, limb weakness, um, the paresthesias moved from one arm to the next to all over my body, this horrific electric shock all over my body that I still deal with this day, severe tinnitus, so I had a freight train sound in one ear and a high E in the other. And um, when I landed in the hospital, my legs just, they gave out. They weren't working anymore. I'd become incontinent. Uh, My sensitivity to light and sound had become so severe that my kids couldn't touch me. They couldn't be in the same room as me. My husband had put towels over the windows to make the room darker. He would come in to check on me and even just the switching of his pants was too painful for my ears. The running of water was too painful for my ears. The dog panting was too much for my ears. So it was, it was bad enough that I had to be holed up in a room by myself 24-7, um, removed from my family, um, definitely removed from my career and everything else. Um, even my teeth were too sensitive. I couldn't brush my teeth. So whatever the hypersensitivity was, it was beyond just a few of my sensory inputs. It was, it was body-wide, system-wide dysfunction. So when I was admitted to the hospital, they weren't sure what it was and um, they didn't run typical tests to rule out GBS or transverse myelitis or any of these other um, neurological issues that are typical with vaccines, although not common. Um, And instead they slapped me with the label of anxiety due to the COVID vaccine. And four days later, I was discharged with intensive in-home physical and occupational therapy to rehab my legs and my cognitive deficits due to anxiety due to the COVID vaccine.
1: You know, it might be, sound unbelievable to people that the collection of symptoms you describe would be diagnosed as anxiety by anybody.
0: Yeah, Um, it's kind of strange because I was, the first at that point or one of the first you know and so I kind of gave the doctors a lot of leeway because it was very clear that they had never seen anything like this before Mm. you know and so it's like well I'm the first they they haven't really understood it you know so maybe maybe that's why I was gaslit and treated the way I was but the sad reality is is now this has happened to tens of thousands of Americans that I know of it's most likely far more Um, where patients are are met with physicians that are doubtful, unbelieving, and in many cases, just outright dismissive to um, their patients' complaints. And and that really puts the patient in a very vulnerable situation, Um, especially if you have family members that are doubtful of what's actually happening with you. Um, and you have a family member that's supportive, that takes you to the doctor's appointment, and the doctor tells you you're crazy. Your family member hears that you're crazy, and what you know inside your body is that this is not anxiety, this is not depression, this is not some psychosomatic issue because your legs are failing, um, you've got electrical shocks going on, you've got severe tinnitus, you can't see right, you can't think straight, um, this isn't just a small moment in time where you're having a mental breakdown. It's an immune, it's a immune system dysfunction. There, there's something wrong in the body. Um, but the doctors are being told that it's not something wrong with the body, that it's, it's all up here. And so what it does is it isolates the people that are suffering with this and it puts them in a very vulnerable situation.
1: So I want to get into the, you know, the bigger picture um, with all these different people that you've been working with now for for quite a while. Um, But going back to that time, you know, presumably you reached out to the people involved in the trial. And so how was that?
0: Yeah, so the drug company, um, all the way up until this day, I have yet to speak to a real human at the drug company. Um, I have talked to people at the clinical trial office Um, back when we very quickly became financially ruined because of this. um, We reached out to the drug company and the clinical trial company uh, begging them for help. Um, We had to refinance our house because they did not own up to their part of our contract. The contract says that they will pay for any and all expenses as a result of an injury and they have not owned up to that. it's at the beginning I, th- I was giving them the benefit of the doubt. You know, it's like, well, maybe they just haven't heard me. There's a breakdown in communication. But looking back at all the emails and the phone calls and, and just the repeated cries for help that between my husband and I, that we made to the drug company, um, it's very obvious that it was intentional. As soon as I was injured, um, it's very obvious that the effort on the side of the drug company to do nothing was in full effect. They weren't going to do anything. There was no effort that was going to be made to help me. They literally left me for dead. Um, the only time that I received compensation from them was because a news story ran locally and uh, they wired $590 to my account without my consent and we told them that that was without our consent and then we never heard from them again. And then six months later, another news story ran and the reporter called asking for a statement. And while they were on the phone with the reporter, they sent a settlement letter to my email and they spelled my name wrong. And in the contract, it, it solves us as all future payments and it, uh, it, we're making a statement that, that AstraZeneca did nothing wrong and all kinds of things. And we were signing our life away. Essentially for twelve hundred dollars. So
1: the but wait. This was sent to you without any communication. It just kind correct. of correct. Like a form letter. Like what is
0: it? Yeah, for? it was a form letter, and it was like it was like regarding the matter, everything will be you know resolved and settled after this. And I'm not a person. According to the drug company, I'm not a human being. I'm a number. You know, and 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 sadly for them, I'm inconvenient to them, um, but. They are a company worth tens of billions of dollars. And I'm not asking for a whole lot. I'm just asking for what my contract is due uh, for my medical expenses. So I wouldn't have had to refinance my house, that my kids could still be in a stable situation um, financially. And they're not willing to lift a finger to make that happen.
1: You know, one thing that strikes me here is that the nature of this first diagnosis seems kind of critical here, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That anxiety diagnosis plagued me for six, seven months until I went to the NIH. And it didn't matter how many doctors I saw, what tests I had run, what positive tests I had. It didn't matter. If I showed up in a doctor's office and if I cried even a little bit because my life was ruined, um, then yeah, it was, was all up here. And I believed the doctors. I did. They told me it was anxiety so many times that I was like, well, they're the professionals, so they would know. So I actually went to a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist did a full neuropsych eval. And he said, I'm not sure what this is, but this is not anxiety. There's something going on in your body, and I'm not sure what it is, but it's not anxiety. And so he issued statements back to all of my, you know, all of my doctors, and even with that, they still didn't change their mind. The NIH reached out to them and they still did not change their mind. And so after months of dealing with this, then the NIH finally took pity on me and flew me out um, to well, be treated there. So
1: explain to me that, uh, how this worked. So suddenly, you know, seven, I think you said seven months down the road, the NIH gets involved, but you're in community. Just sort of explain to me that whole piece of the puzzle.
0: So my husband, he's a, he's a chemist. Um, and so he realized very early on that the doctors were not going to do anything, the drug company wasn't gonna do anything. So if something were to be resolved, he was gonna be the one to figure it out. So he started digging into the studies and reaching out to researchers all over the globe. Um, a lead researcher in Germany got my blood a month after my injury. And uh, my test result came back that I was positive for antineuronal autoantibodies, which means that your, uh, <laughs> your immune system is attacking your nerves. So it's something nobody wants, you know, Um, and even with that, I was still anxiety. So he reached out to the NIH. Um, So Dr. Nath and Dr. Safavi at the NIH um, in January 11th of 2021. So about a month and a half into my injury, they reached out and replied right away. There was another person that was injured by AstraZeneca here in the United States that had a very similar cascade of symptoms. Uh, after her uh, COVID vaccine from AstraZeneca. So we got them in touch with the NIH. There were two of us that were complaining about the same thing. And we don't know if it's directly correlated or not, but 10 days later, AstraZeneca was pulled off the market after we filed those complaints. At that point, NIH started a study. It's on record. They started a study January 11th of 2021 to investigate COVID vaccine injuries um, that are neurological in nature. And from there, they started collecting samples from people all over the country. They started enrolling individuals. They started flying people out. And um, I'm patient one in that study. And my friend, Denise Hertz, Dr. Denise Hertz, an injured gastroenterologist from California, she's patient two. And so it's just, it's very strange to see chronologically who is in that study, it's, it's literally, it's the people I met in sequence, the whole first row of the people that are in that study. So they, they studied us. They, um, they went so far as to collect samples from someone who had died. Um, so the amount of knowledge that the NIH has on what's going on with the COVID vaccine injuries is very intimate, it's very detailed, yet, what the public is being told about this is that the vaccines are safe. Period. There's no asterisk. There's no subtext to that. There's no the vaccines are safe. Oh, but by the way, we've been flying people out for the last year and a half, two years, and we're finding clues that could probably help these people get better, but we're not gonna tell you guys what those are. We're just gonna we're just gonna keep it secret.
1: Well if I recall, Dr. Nath actually talked about how early intervention is sort of the most valuable thing in these, when these injuries occur.
0: He did, yes. So, so he said this to me privately, and then he also disclosed this in an article that was published by the AAN, the American um, Academy of Neurology. And they, they published this paper in the fall of 2021. So, you know, six, seven months into the public rollout. But then they already knew, right, that early intervention is key, as with any um, immune dysfunction in the body. Early intervention is key, right? But they also know that immunotherapy could be implemented and help stop the severe cascade of the disease. So the NIH knows, the FDA also knows this, right? They know that there's this very crucial piece to the puzzle to keeping people from becoming chronic, but they're not telling or informing medical professionals of of the necessity of early intervention. And so what's happened is people, instead of learning from my case in the clinical trial, right? learning from Maddie to Gary, learning from Olivia Tessinar, who's injured in the Moderna clinical trial, um, this information has all been hidden, swept under the rug and minimized. Instead of taking these cases, investigating them appropriately, collecting the data and then using that information to help those that are like us who came after us from becoming chronic and severe as we are. You know,
1: <laughs> I think there's something really important here that the, the NIH treatment actually helped you profoundly as I understand it, Yes, right? yes. Yeah, so there's the, this, this treatment does exist.
0: Yes, and that's where it's hard for me because on the one end, you know, And I've told him this, um, he's one of the main reasons why I'm still alive.
1: Dr. Nath.
0: Yeah, Dr. Nath. So he um, he was one of the very few that validated me in my condition, right? He was the guy at the NIH that was calling my doctors locally and saying, look, your patient isn't crazy. There's something wrong with her. You need to help her, right? He was the only guy in the country doing that. But then on top of that, he's the guy to do that. If you're going to have someone talking about a novel neuroinfectious uh, issue with your body, he's the guy in the United States. He is the top mind in neuroinfectious disease. So it's not like we just had anyone pulling for us. But what blows my mind is that we funneled, literally hundreds of patients to the NIH to be studied and evaluated and helped. But it wasn't just for the hundreds, right? It wasn't just for a select few. The whole reason we were doing that is because we were promised that they would take that information, they would process it, and then they would disclose it to the public. We didn't go for ourselves. We went for the tens of thousands of others that were like us that needed similar care. So I have almost like a survivor's guilt, I do, because why was I selected Why was I one of the very few selected to go to get that golden ticket to go to the NIH to be able to have the opportunity to have my my trajectory of recovery essentially changed? When I know tens of thousands of Americans that are really good people that deserve the same treatment, they deserve the same interventions, they deserve the same compassion, and they were not afforded that and they weren't afforded that because people that knew stayed silent. Why? That's a good question. So what's the reason for that, right? Is it because they don't wanna perpetuate vaccine hesitancy? Is it because they're getting millions of dollars in royalties from Moderna? Is it, you know, is it more nuanced than that? Is it really just because someone told them that they need to shut up I'm not entirely sure why, but I understand that it was not right for the American public to know or to not be informed. Everybody in this country deserves to know the full risks and benefits of the COVID vaccines. It's that simple. Every single American should be able to make a full informed decision, not based on fear, not based on promises, right? But informed by data.
1: Well, and not based on information that apparently designed to elicit a behavioral response, which is what, you know, my observation and numerous people I've spoken with, you know, that if this feeling that you're not being told the truth, you're being told information that will get you to do something specific that is uh, intended.
0: Right. And, you know, and obviously if there was an extreme issue with covid vaccines that would shift policy which at the time the policy was you get your shot and you sit down you shut up right there was no middle ground for there there was no well what what could increase you know the likelihood of of having a severe adverse reaction and who had to figure that out we did we had to figure that out on our own we went through all of our injured individuals and we asked them what you know, pre-existing conditions they had. um, That's something the government should be doing. You know, that's something that should be backed by pharmaceutical dollars, right? We shouldn't be having to figure that out. The taxpayers shouldn't have to be figuring it out. But it also blows my mind that the taxpayers financed for the development of this product, right? Taxpayers financed promoting this product and the taxpayers ultimately are going to have to pay for the aftermath of the failure of this product because the drug companies are liability free. It's an amazing business model for them to just be able to print money. How many of the
1: hundred or plus people that you recommended or introduced to the NIH got some help?
0: I want to say most of them did. It was very strange though, because some of the people that reached out to the NIH were told there's nothing going on here. So there was a select few that they would just, I don't know if they were overwhelmed or what, but during that time they would just be like, there's nothing going on here. There's no research going on here. There's no, it's very strange. But then if you were, if you were one of the lucky to actually get them to respond and call your doctor at home, your, your entire um, case management with your local doctor would change. It would change everything. Just to have the NIH say, "Hey, yeah, yeah, this is happening. You need to help your patient." And Maddie DeGarry was one of those that mm-hmm. um, that her her doctor was called from the NIH to say, "Yeah, this person's having a reaction. You probably need to validate them and run testing and here's some possible treatments."
1: Well, so let's look back at the Maddie DeGarry case. You know, it was amazing to have Maddie on. I, you know. A year ago, again, it was a very brave young girl. Let's just say, Um, and you know, I don't know what has happened in the past year, and I know that she had. There were there were many many steps before she got validated. What is it about this case that that you know? I know it's very very particularly close to your heart, and of course, it's hard not to love Maddie. But there's more to it than that.
0: So. Maddie's a kid, right? You know, um, of all of the cases that we've had come through REACT-19, the tens of thousands, um, the treatment that Maddie has got has been by far the worst. She's gotten the worst medical care. She's gotten the worst treatment from the drug companies and the government. Um, She's been exploited to no end uh, from people within our own sphere. That kid deserves better. She's resilient, she's incredibly bright, she is hilarious. Um, I don't think people realize the amount of just sheer grit and will that that kid has to make it through every day. Um, And I'm gonna do everything I can to get that kid out of that wheelchair. We're gonna do everything we can. I'm not gonna stop until she's better.
1: Very briefly, so we, we, we do have an interview about a year ago where we talk about her case, but so what what has shifted? And I'll encourage our viewers to, to take a look at that, but um, you know, just very briefly, if you could just summary what happened to her, and then where has things progressed in the past year?
0: So she was coded as a stomach ache, even though her legs stopped working. And she has a form of gastroparesis where um, her throat muscles won't let her swallow, so she has a feeding tube. Um, She was having several seizures a day early on. Um, She had cognitive issues, her vision is still messed up. Um, She's got some fine motor things that are starting to get better. Um, But I'm telling you, like, she's finally able to start getting some of these treatments that it's taken us over a year, year and a half to get these these treatment protocols finally in place for her because all these doctors kept using the fact that she's a minor as an excuse not to help her. Like, well, she's a kid, so we're not specialized in pediatrics. But shouldn't it be the opposite? It should be the opposite. It should be, look, this is the kid. She should be jumped to the t- front of the line. Clinical trial participants should be jumped to the front of the line. And in reality, what we've learned is injured clinical trial participant and injured kids, they go to the bottom of the barrel. So, um, yeah so her treatment is very expensive Um, it's very tenuous they've cycled through numerous different trials and options it's been hard but she's her neck is is starting to stabilize and and she's starting to see a little bit of improvement and and i'm confident that we'll we'll get her back to some measure of life but in reality it's that kid's been abandoned you know and and her case is a it's not uncommon. That's what's happening to people all over this country. It's, they're being abandoned. They're being ignored. And, and you know, I understand that people are tired of COVID. They're so tired of COVID, right? It, it was toxic. It was hard on everybody. And people are ready to move on, right? They're, they're ready to move on to the next step and, and, and to put COVID behind us, right? But we can't. We essentially were, were trapped. We're trapped in COVID nightmare. And it's never gonna stop because we have permanent physical ailments. And we have a government that still continues to persist that we don't exist. You know, the drug companies don't wanna admit that this is happening. And why would they? Because the government gave them the free ticket out of this for liability. So they are not liable or obligated to help us in any way. So why would they? So this comes back to everyday Americans and actually everyday people all over the globe, hopefully you're going to be able to have the compassion to be able to step back and realize, look, we've left these people on the battlefield. And it's a decision that everyone's going to have to make, right? Do we leave them there on the battlefield or do we pick them up? And do we try to bring them with us to move forward?
1: I think, and I really want to explore that a little further. There's one thing I want to touch on before we go there, which I've disturbed me quite a bit. You mentioned something about how Maddie was exploited um, by people on—I don't know—all sides. Right. So, so yeah. what what happened?
0: So it's it's kind of sad, you know. Um, and this probably will ruffle some feathers, but needs to be said. Um, the injured have largely we've been used for our stories right so people come and they're like come tell us the worst part of your life and I don't think people realize it's like asking a rape victim to come and recount the most horrific experience of their life over and over and over like it's it's not it's not healing you know it's traumatizing it's like ripping off a band-aid all the time right um, and then you know in the guise of trying to further and help people understand and increase awareness. Um, it's it, the, the step beyond just our stories is there's more action that needs to be taken. There's political action, there's policies that need to be changed to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Right. Um, but what's strange is when you have someone that's in a wheelchair, and, and she's basically the icon, right, for, for the vaccine failure, right? And she's kind of turned into that. And so you would think that we'd have people flooding to help her, but instead what has happened is she's being used to increase following, increase notoriety, um, line pockets with money. That money's not coming back to them. That's not um, the support that they've received have been from a very select few of individuals in this in this sphere who have really seen what's been happening to her and realized, yeah, we can't we can't do this to a kid. We can't just put her out on a stage and then send her home to be alone and suffering by herself. We need to lean in. We need to find her medical interventions. We need to provide some kind of financial support. I mean, it's one thing to have a bunch of injured people telling their stories, but that's, that's not what the injured need. I mean, we're more than happy to stand there and increase advocacy and raise our voices and, and push because it's the right thing to do. It's most definitely the most important thing we can do to help increase awareness so people can understand what's happening. But on the back end, there's a whole lot that needs to be done beyond step one. And step one is recognition, right? But step two is evaluate the issue and figure out what needs to be done to fix it, and that's where things get really hard and muddy.
1: So you've described now for all of us the number of the symptoms that you had, um, and then some of that was alleviated through the treatment you got through the NIH. There's some other people who have gotten this. You're in your organization, React 19. Now there's, I, you know, 10,000 plus. I don't know how many. Maybe I'll. I, that I'd like to know more how that organization grew. You know, who are the people there? How does it fund itself? You, you mentioned, you know, there's always this financial question hovering in the air, right? So, so, so tell me about where things are at.
0: So react 19 is a, a nonprofit that was organized, essentially because the government wasn't doing their job, right? And because the government wasn't doing their job, somebody had to. So the injured realized, well, we got to do it ourselves. If no one's coming to save us, we've got to do it ourselves. So we started a nonprofit. It started by the injured for the injured. And in one short year, we have amassed over 21,000 COVID vaccine injured just here in the United States. Uh, that number could be up to twenty seven, thirty thousand 30,000 easily. But um, and then with our international partners, we have close to two dozen international partners across the globe. And so our numbers are big. But when it comes down to it, because of the censorship and um, you know the all-out oppression, our numbers are still small in comparison to who really is out there. But this organization is it was created by medical professionals because they were the first ones that were injured and scientists and people that really want to make sure that there's financial, physical, and emotional support for those that are suffering from COVID vaccine adverse events. Our funding is 100% grassroots. We don't have any philanthropists supporting us. Um, it's all just everyday people that are compassionate and they see the issues and they want to help. and. of the donations go to supporting the injured. We're 100% volunteer, which is something I'm very proud of. And we wanna make sure that we do that and we keep it that way because we see the importance of every single dollar that comes in. And we know that that will make a difference for somebody, whether it's through medical support or um, any other kind of support resources that need to be built. We have people literally living in cars that have to decide whether they're going to be able to, you know, pay for their gas, to go to the food bank to get their food, or to go get their prescription. And so we're able to help them get their prescription, help them get IVIG, help them get red light therapy. You know, we want the injured to be empowered to be able to make their decisions and take ownership of their healing when everything around them, their medical teams, their their jobs, their government has abandoned them and essentially stripped them of that power. So our job now is to give that power back to them so they can take the initiative to figure out what is going to work in their case. But we have to put those pieces in place, right? We have to pave the path for them to get better. And that takes money and it takes a lot of effort, a lot of different programs we have An advocacy or uh, program, and so uh, an injured is assigned an advocate, and they're basically it's like a buddy system. Mm. And they listen to them and figure out what some you know constellation of symptoms they have, and help them find local doctors that are compassionate and and willing to stick with them and help them. We have a financial compensation program, and we issue grants for six thousand to ten thousand dollars, and that's strictly for medical expenses for people in need. And that's made a huge difference. It's been incredible to see how many doors are able to open for people through that program. But I mean, you know, that money just doesn't magically come fall out of thin air. That, that money has to come from somewhere, right? And, and it's hard to keep those coffers full because as soon as that money comes in, there's somebody right in line that needs it. And we know those people. We love those people. We know their names. We know their families. And so we want to do everything we can to make sure that we can get these people their lives back to stop the progression of their disease because they have nobody. A lot of these people don't have families that believe them. Mm. You know, they don't have, you know, we all have friends that don't believe us. Uh, Big tech is definitely against us. And so, so hopefully what we're able to build through React 19 is a refuge for these people And in turn, these people will be able to find their voice and find physical strength to be able to come out and and push and stand with us and and be able to share their voices and the injustices that have that have happened to help us enact change. So this doesn't happen again. So we can make sure that the injustices that many, many people have have faced through the COVID pandemic. We want to make sure that those mistakes are not repeated.
1: I really want to talk about this, you know, sort of gaslighting, kind of how that played out because, you know, for example, for people that chose not to get vaccinated, there was, you know, a huge stigma associated with that. There was pandemic of the unvaccinated rhetoric. And I know that, you know, you, you've already heard some of from you today, some of, you know, how people were treated, you know, you, it's hysteria that you have. It's it's some sort of emotional thing. It's a stomach ache, you know. Um, but what, what was your reaction when you learned that these genetic vaccines, or at least in the Pfizer case, were never tested for transmission? With the knowledge that, you know, there's this expectation, I mean, in society that this was gonna stop transmission. There's all the rhetoric was built around that from what I could tell.
0: Well, it, it didn't surprise me, you know, and I think Just, But it was because by that point I had gone from all believing and part of the solution to my life is ruined. Okay, wait, now I'm going to be part of the solution still, but it's going to be in a way that I didn't know needed to happen. right? And um, by that point, we already knew that it didn't stop transmission. We knew that they weren't looking for the things that they should have. They weren't evaluating safety appropriately. They weren't evaluating transmission appropriately. And the data that they have, they're not disclosing to the public. The only way you're able to get that data is through foyer requests after FOIA requests, you know, mountains of lawyers going after them. Um, it still blows my mind that Americans are okay with very simple data sets being held back and the government requesting that they be restricted from our view for 75 years. That should be a red flag for anybody. Because, I mean, let's be honest, transparency, right? Is it's so important. If we don't have the raw data, then what do we have? All we have are promises, and that's what we were. That's what we got. And those promises turned out to be lies, right? And so nothing feeds conspiracy like quite like no transparency. You know. And it's not a conspiracy theory at this point. If you don't have the data, you don't have the data. And why are they holding on to the data if they have nothing to hide, right? Because what we heard early on in the pandemic was the overwhelming data shows that the vaccines are safe and effective, right? I mean, Rochelle Walensky, um, Janet Woodcock, Fauci. That's what they were saying on all of the mainstream media channels, right? The overwhelming data. So it's like, okay, well, let's see the data. And so now Zach Stieber with Epoch Times has, has, has definitely landed a significant win in the, in the quest for truth and transparency um, with the FOIA request that was awarded. And and he was able to get all of the, um, a recent uh, VAERS um, review done by the CDC. And so what they did is they reviewed all of the adverse events through the Vares system to look for safety signals. And what did they find? The CDC found that Um, there are 500 safety signals that are more significant and higher than myocarditis.
1: Which is one of the few that's admitted to. Right. Or one of the few relationships that's admitted to.
0: Yes. And so myocarditis, the FDA takes great pride in identifying myocarditis based on six cases. And here we are with a data set with 700 and something safety signals and 500, over 500, are stronger safety signals than myocarditis. Yet, what of those 500 are actually disclosed to the public? How many of those? How many people are struggling with those 500 issues and they're being told that it's nothing, that it's in their head? Oh, it must be COVID. Maybe it's it's too much stress at work. When in actuality, it's a pharmaceutical that they're being told to inject into their arm over and over and over. And many of those diseases are literally landing people in their graves. I mean, tinnitus, is, it's a very simple word. But if you have tinnitus, your life is not lovely.
1: That was one of the very strong safety signals in that report.
0: Yes, and a fellow injured, Robert Edmonds, he's an injured scientist. He actually reached out to Tong Sumbakuru, who's um, the, basically the head of the vaccine program at the CDC, And he reached out to him and identified tinnitus as a safety signal. He said, look, this is a problem. You know, I found the data. He was very objective, very calm and calculated with with how he presented the information. And Tom brushed it aside. The CDC didn't want to hear from this individual who was suffering from this issue firsthand and also had identified the safety signal. Instead, what they did is they did everything they could to hide him and hide the information that he was bringing. And then in addition, the CDC furthermore went and investigated for tinnitus itself, found a very strong signal and hid that as well. And that's just one example of the 500,
1: right? Well, and I, I kind of cut you off a little bit earlier about, you know, why tinnitus, it sounds like something that's kind of not a big deal. It might to people that aren't actually experiencing a severe version of it. But I think you were going to talk about what impact that can have on people.
0: Yeah, so tinnitus is just one example of of these life-altering injuries that are not like clots, right? You can't see tinnitus on a test. Um, but it's life-altering. If you could imagine when you're laying your head down at night to go to sleep and and the room's quiet, or you might hear the fan moving or, you know, um, some sound from outside. Imagine instead if you hear a screaming mm-hmm. in your head, all the time and it doesn't go away it doesn't wane right it's always there so instead of being met with peace at night and being able to unwind you're instead met with a screaming loud screeching in your head your peace is robbed of you for the rest of your life and then on top of that there's no one to answer for that so if people cannot rest, if they cannot find peace, if they cannot find a reprieve, their families have turned their backs on them, their peers have turned their backs on them, the medical community has as well, it puts that person in a very vulnerable situation. Um, and it's, at it React, we've been doing everything we can to save lives, everything, right? And, but the sad reality is we haven't been able to save everyone. And there's some people that have made the ultimate choice to to end their suffering, and tinnitus is a big one. Um, I want to say probably 30-35% of the the people that do end their lives, it's because of tinnitus.
1: You know, this uh, subject. I know we've we've talked a bit offline about this. Um, it, it it's not academic for you.
0: No, it's not. No, this one this one's hard, and it's personal. And it's one of those things nobody wants to talk about. and I definitely don't like to talk about it but but it's personal. you know, like I suffered with the suicidal intention intention for months. Um, with a vaccine reaction, it's not like it's not like it's fleeting. It's not like it's a moment in time where you've had a couple of bad days and then it's over, right? you're When I was in that situation, I hadn't slept for months. I had the raging tinnitus, the electrical sensations all over my body, which I still have to this day, every moment of every day. Um, My brain fog was, you know, off the charts. I couldn't eat. you could see every single rib in my body. I'd lost so much weight because I just couldn't eat. I was one step away from having a feeding tube. They put me on marijuana. I mean, they did everything to try to get me to be able to keep weight on and and to be able to consume food. Um, I was not in a good place. Like I remember waking up every single day and it's still to this day, I wake up every single morning to this electrical surging through my body. That's what greets me every morning. And it was hard to cope with that, it was hard to learn to live with that, right? And so there was a time where I couldn't rest. There was no, no joy for even a minute in my day. And that went on for months to the point where it's like, what's the point, right? And so I wanted to be done. And I had a plan. Um, and I, you know, wrote goodbye letters to my kids. Sorry. I'll never forgive myself for that for almost destroying their lives but at the time I didn't I couldn't think through I wasn't thinking straight I wasn't thinking about them um, but I hid it I was ashamed right so I didn't tell people about it and as we As I overcame that issue, right, as I overcame that and I learned to accept it, which was really, really hard, right, still something that I work on all the time, be like, you know, look, I have a choice every day when I wake up, right? I have a choice to accept my body sucks, right, and it hurts, and it's, you know, all these weird things are going on, and I can accept that though. And it doesn't mean that I'm okay with it, but it means that I can accept it and go, yes, this is part of my life, but my kids need XYZ, the injured need ABC, right? And if I'm trapped and if all I'm doing is being miserable and suffering inside my head, I'm not doing any of them any good. And in, and also I'm not doing myself any good because then there goes all my healing energy for myself, right? So. It took a long time to be able to evolve from my life is wrecked, it sucks, to what it is now, which is I need to fight, I need to stick with it, doesn't matter how bad this gets, I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that my, body's, that my life means something and that my kids, I'm there for my kids. But I hid that, I hid that whole process because I was so embarrassed and so, it's, humiliating to think that you are brought to your knees to the point where you want nothing more than to just be dead, right? Nobody wants to admit that they were that vulnerable and that their life was that bad, right? Because it's seen as a weakness. It's seen, but that's not what it is, you know? Um, I had a friend, and this is when I realized that I, I couldn't hide it anymore. I had a really good friend who was injured Um, She was a COVID long hauler for a long time and then she got vaccinated hoping that would fix the long haul because that was the, you know, the promise, right? The lie that it would fix long haul and instead it made her dramatically worse. And um, we talked every day and um, she ended up ending her life and her husband called and told me that she was on life support. Uh, and I'll never forget that call because I had just barely come out of that place in my own head. And so, but the last words she's told me was, you know, you're so strong. And when she said that, I was I was kind of taken back and embarrassed, right? Because I knew where I just was in my head. I knew where I was just like, you know, almost about ready to check out. And... So I didn't say anything to her. I just said, thank you. But in reality, what I should have told her is just how bad it was. I should have told her the journey that I had just been on myself. I should have told her just how hard it was, because then maybe that would have given her the reason to hang on. Maybe that would have given her a little bit of, you know, the understanding that, look, I'm not strong. I'm just like you. I'm just like anyone else. I'm just doing my best. And yes, it sucks.
1: You know, I can't, thank you for, for sharing that here. Um, I can't help, but think that, you know, in your case, you actually have a very supportive family. And despite that, it was, it was so horrible just can hardly imagine what it would be like for people whose family members may not believe them because they've been told safe and effective, no chance of this. It's just in your head.
0: And that's the, yeah, that's the real, I mean, when it comes down to it, that's literally, that's the only reason I'm alive is because my husband believed me and validated me and he stood by me every step of the way. Um, Had I not had that support, I would have been done, no question there's no question. My kids would not have a mom, you know, their lives would be ruined. The whole thing. We would not be sitting here today. Um, there's the vast majority of the people that do complete suicide in the COVID vaccine injury world. They do not have supportive family. I want to think there's two of the, I think we're at 27, 28 now, um, could be upwards of 30, um, there's only two that I know of that were from families that were supportive and watching them. The rest were people that their family members had walked away. There was a woman who, medical professional, um, beautiful family, adult children. Um, her husband left her because of the burden because she was trapped in her bed. You know, She wasn't getting better. And so he left her and he told the kids the adult kids he said you guys are going to be stuck here caring for your mom until she dies so you better get out so the kids left and so she went and found a way to do it um, that was sanctioned by the canadian government and so she went through with it and ended her life and i know that people see that as just a number but That's a real human being. That's someone that deserved better and that's someone that deserved to have some dignity and some respect for, you know, she didn't have any choice into what happened to her. And so she should be just like a cancer patient. Cancer patient gets their diagnosis. They're sat down with their family members and their medical teams, right? And they say, okay, here's a plan. Family, this is how you can support this person, right? The opposite is happening here. You get a reaction and boom, you're done. And they probably are, you know, there's no help for you. And the help that you do get is gonna be from random people you find on the internet, you know, that just happen to have the secrets from the NIH.
1: I hope it's okay. I wanna explore this a little bit more because you mentioned um, this woman was in Canada where as one of the most uh, liberal medically assisted suicide uh, regimes, and you've got just getting more liberal this year, actually coming up, and I, I'm aware of at least one instance where someone ostensi- was ostensibly vaccine injured, but subsequent and, and was offered MAID, as it's called, as as a as a solution, and that. I, I, it's hard for me to describe the series of thoughts I had when I, when I, learned about this. I don't know if you have any thoughts.
0: I think it's obviously it's wrong and it's corrupt and it's it's evil. You know, and that's one thing that COVID has done is it's, it hasn't exposed. You know, really what COVID has done is is it's exposed evil. Right? It's it's brought evil to the surface wherever it's been hiding, um, and. This is one of those cases, you know, it's you have real people that are dealing with a real disease. And instead of addressing the issue because the people responsible, the drug companies, um, they're absolved from being able to or being obligated to fix the problems with their drug. Then the cheapest way to take care of the issue is to dispose of the people, right, to erase them, erase their voices. The sad thing is, is we've seen this time and time again with the suicides is, once you're gone, there's no one there that's gonna step in and and be your voice. Once you're gone, that's it. There's, you know, no one's gonna stand out with the flag with your name on it and wave it, you know, to try to bring justice for you. Because most of these people that do this, their families are not, they're not on board. So the, if people want justice for themselves, they've got to bring justice for themselves alive. There's, there's no one that's going to save them more than themselves. And that's one of the things that the injured can do for each other is to help each other get through that, to get through those moments, get through that place. Because you can. Um, I know that because I've done it myself. There's There's times in my day where I can have joy now, you know, like my body is not a nightmare all the time every day. You know, I'm able to spend time with my kids. Um, I was able to go to my son's, you know, little school parade that they had. And I hadn't been able to do that for two years. And he wasn't expecting me to go. And I tell you, like he was the only 10 year old kid in the entire school that cared that his mom was there. And he just kept looking back at me like, Oh, it's you, you know? And when he got home, he came straight up and gave me the biggest tug. And the rest of my day sucked. It hurt and there was, it was miserable. But that moment right there made the whole day worth it.
1: i I mean, I, I might endeavor to add here that I think there's a few other people around who probably appreciate your work and advocacy. <laughs>
0: Hopefully, well, powerful people aren't too happy about that. But yeah, I mean, and there's, you know, the people that get involved with REACT-19, whether they're injured or not, um, we hear it over and over. We have 65 volunteers at this point. Um, They say the most gratifying work that they've ever done in their life has actually been through what they've been able to do through REACT-19. These are people that have worked in ICUs. They've worked with marginalized populations in the past. You know, they come from all corners of the globe, all um, shapes and sizes of professions and, and they've been able to find, you know, true satisfaction in being able to heal a population and help a, support a population that nobody else is helping. That's been the same for me as well. I mean, it's these people are amazing. The injured community are amazing people and they really genuinely Most of them, they didn't get vaccinated to prove to somebody that what they were doing was right. They were doing it to help other people, right? They were doing it to help their communities, support their family members or whatever it may be. It wasn't to say "Ha, we're right, the vaccines are great. That's not what people were doing. Um, And now in their injuries, they're doing the same. They really just wanna help people and they want to help each other. They still want to help especially provide the truth so people don't get forced to have these vaccines, especially with complete and incomplete and flawed information. You know. So I'm going to do everything I can to support these people. They they need the support.
1: A lot of new information has come out including this, you know, recent, recent FOIA uh, information about these, you know, it's, it's still hard for me to fathom. There's 500 plus safety signals, right? And just for the benefit of our viewers, that simply means, you know, if you're going, if myocarditis warrants investigation, there's 500 plus other things that warrant serious investigation. That's what that means to me, right? And there's a whole plethora of further information which has come out including, for example, the V-safe data that Aaron Siri was able to get and you know, I could, we could go on and on. But so you're, you know, with REACT-19, with this advocacy for the vaccine injured, it feels like you're in a very different place beginning of 2023 than beginning of 2022 when we first met. Um, so what's on the horizon?
0: We've got to get these people better and we've got to get the truth out. Um, We're going to do everything we can to make sure that investigations happen um, and that people are held accountable, um, that policies are changed. Um, Our goals are to open clinics, care clinics across the country in 2023. Uh, We actually have a research grant program that just launched, and it's a research match program actually, so any donation is matched up to $100,000 right now. The reason why that's so important is because, as you know, (laughs) the federal research dollars are not going to evaluate the COVID vaccine issues, right? They're not. So for that research to happen, it's going to have to be independently funded. If it's not independently funded, it's not going to happen. And just like everything else, the data is where the truth lies. And until we generate the data to show exactly what's going on with the COVID vaccines and what adverse events are happening, and, um, and then also as a result to see how we can reverse some of these issues, we're not going to have the truth. So to find the truth, it takes money, you know, but then also um, we're going to continue to build this injured community to involve those that are not just injured, but those that see the injuries and to see if we can figure out how to expand that to more of the, as Joel Walskog says, he's my co-chair at React 19, he said the moldable middle. So these are the people that if you if you're with people and, you know, family functions or whatever, you know, most people don't talk about politics, they don't talk about religion, and you don't talk about vaccines, right? But the thing is, is most people, they, they know someone that's been injured, right? And I don't think people realize that if, if you're not supporting someone that you know that's injured, most likely nobody else is either. And so the goal is to help people take that initiative to provide that support to someone that is injured, um, that is suffering, because sometimes they just need a phone call other times they need a little bit more. They may need a meal brought in or someone to come sit with them or take them to the doctor. Um, but we can't do it alone. And it's just like with everything else that needs to happen um, as we reflect on, on the COVID tyranny, there's a lot of justice that needs to come many people's way, right? But the only way that justice is gonna happen is if we, if we band together. Separate, we're, we're going to fail, right? But together, we're going to be able to succeed.
1: It's really interesting that you're saying that, you know, there's almost anyone out there that could actually provide a helping hand to someone who is suffering from some kind of injury or perception, or even a perception of an injury. And this is what strikes me, right? That even some of these people that are injured themselves, because of this huge information campaign that we've been billion, multi billion dollar information campaign that we've all all been subject to, they might themselves not realize that a a series of symptoms, they don't realize that the doctors won't diagnose it. um, Yet, you know, they could be helped, right? I mean, how do we deal with that?
0: People are going to need to rise to the challenge, right? I mean, this is this is one of those opportunities for people to really realize that, look, there's some people that have been left behind, and look around and see who those people are, and it really just it starts with a phone call and to just listen and see what they need. Because
1: um, we don't we don't even need to say vaccine injury, or we don't need right. to say I think you have that. Um, there's just a lot of people out there that didn't have some really unfortunate collection of symptoms
0: yeah and i mean checking in with somebody and this is how it goes with any disease right you just check in with them because out of sight out of mind is a real thing the government and big tech have actually been able to capitalize on that concept right i mean all you have to do is make sure that people don't see it they don't think about it and therefore public pressure cannot be applied to get government to do their job, right? All they have to do is just eliminate that part of the equation, and then the problem doesn't exist. But now what's happened is there's everyday people that need, they need that support, you know?
1: How, how is it that myocarditis was admitted to? You know, I, 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 there's maybe two or three.
0: Yeah, so things. the FDA yeah. proudly acknowledges myocarditis based on six cases. And so, um, and actually with our meetings with um, Peter Marks, the head of biologics at the FDA, uh, he's the one that gives the rubber stamp on, on the licenses for the COVID vaccines. Um, they take great pride in that number. We found, we found myocarditis based on six cases. Well, what about all of these other signals? And, you know, just like we've said before, we pounded down those doors to gain access to those those officials that were responsible for disclosing reactions to the public they said we've looked and looked and looked we've really looked for adverse events and we just can't find them and then come to find out Zach Stieber was able to show and access the records that show that that's not true and that we were all lied to And in fact, they found 500 more safety signals that they should have disclosed to the public, not just a few. And in those 500 issues, in those 500 signals, there's all of the issues that COVID vaccine injuries reflect, right? You've got dysautonomia, POTS, tinnitus, paresthesias, facial and trigeminal issues, which who would have thought that this could be such a debilitating issue to have these nerves destroyed but they're debilitating. you know. The government has not been transparent. They have not disclosed any of this to the public. And in reality, in doing so, it's hidden us. It's, it's kept us from public view. Um, the media repeatedly has told us that they can't report on COVID vaccine injuries. We have this on record. I mean, so if the media is controlled, corporate media is controlled and whoever is controlling them, whatever, and the government's controlling the information and the flow of information, and the drug companies can control the flow of information because they're a private entity, you know, how are we going to win? We're going to win by we the people stepping up and not accepting this situation that we're in. We the people have to step forward and demand better from our elected officials, from the pharmaceutical companies, and, um, and from the media. And so until we generate a public outcry from the ground up, policy will not shift. The pressure will not be applied and they will come back and they, without question, will do the same thing to people again. Under the sake of emergency, they'll just wait for the next emergency to appear.
1: Sounds like you have a lot of work ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> Well Brianne Dressen, it's such a pleasure to have you on again.
0: Well thanks for having me.
1: Thank you all for joining Brianne Dressen and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. AstraZeneca and NIH did not immediately respond to our requests for comment.